0: It is great to be able to spend some time with you today. Um, We are in this uh, summer series called Everyday Wisdom. We've been looking at the book of Proverbs. And one of the things I love about the book of Proverbs is that it deals with so many visible, practical variety of things like money, sex, marriage, and knowing the will of God, and communication and dealing with difficult relationships. It also deals with what I think is really important, the practical connection between our inner life and our outward behavior, which is where we're going to spend our time today because it is so important. Let's begin with a verse we read before, Proverbs 4. It says this, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything flows from it. The text says everything flows from your heart, referring to your inner life, not the organ of your heart. What's going on inside of you dictates your outward behavior. I love my Mac. Mac. Uh, I switched to Mac in around 2010, and uh, I've only had, like, one thing happen that was might have possibly been a virus since then. Before I was a Mac person, I was all too often questioning whether I was working in ministry or whether I was working in virus and malware resolution. The past week, we bought my son a computer for college. He's going into engineering. Mac doesn't play nice with all that, so we're venturing back into the PC world, and we'll see how it goes. See, here's the sinister thing about viruses and malware. They generally run in the background, and at some point when they're triggered, they all of a sudden hijack and instantly corrupt portions of your computer. I can so often remember surfing the web doing research, and all of a sudden my browser goes crazy, and I can't do anything until I go into safe mode. I go in and clean up the registry and fix all the deleted broken strings. Now, how does that relate to us today? Inside each and every one of us, in our hearts, there are things running in the background of our lives that often out of the blue trigger something and they sabotage us, they hijack us, much like a computer virus or malware. And when it happens, we sometimes find ourselves wondering, where on earth did that come from? For some of you, that virus or malware is so prevalent in your heart that it drives you, it controls you, it controls what you do and it frustrates you. The, the New American Standard version of this same verse translates a little bit more literally. It says this, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Now, superstitious explorers and romantics have forsought sought the fountain of youth for all of history. But this is saying that fountain is inside of you. Growing up in Minnesota, I spent a lot of time working on farms, and each farm had their own well. The dairy farm I worked on, uh, oh man, was that well water good. It was so cold, so fresh, so awesome tasting. Coming in from the field on a hot, humid 90-degree day after baling hay and drinking, it felt like what I hope heaven feels like. I mean, it was that good. But there was another farm that I worked on where the water tasted horrible and I always got a stomachache from it. And every day we'd come in for lunch from that place and I was grateful when they served lemonade. It was just something to cover the taste. But here's the deal. Whatever it was in the water that made it taste bad and give me a stomachache, it was still there even though the lemon covered up the bad taste. If you want to change the water, you have to change something in the heart of the well from where it flows. And that's the same of our hearts. Today we're going to take a deep dive into the well of our hearts to examine one of the most powerful viruses that for some of you has dominated your life, and you may not even realize it. It drives your decisions. You You don't know why you make some bad decisions, but you do it anyway, right? It's the virus that no matter how hard you try to be, the better person you want to be, something always tanks you. No matter how often you resolve to be different in a conversation or a conflict, you still walk away from that conversation or conflict questioning whether you were okay, whether you embarrassed yourself or whether you embarrassed others or whether you acted foolishly. Maybe for you it's actually your faith and you come to church and you want to believe, you want to follow Jesus, you just just maybe want to follow Him, period. Maybe you want to make that decision, period, to follow Him, but you just can't seem to follow through step, uh, you you step in, but you can't stay the course and you go home from church and a small group, maybe, and you're inspired, but you're wanting to be different, but your passion wanes really quickly and you find yourself doing and living in ways that you just wish you wouldn't. If any of that remotely describes you and where you're at, today's message is for you today we're focusing primarily on three short verses in Proverbs. Here's the first one that defines the virus. It's Proverbs 29, 25, and it says this. Fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts the Lord is kept safe. The fear of man leads to you being snared, to being caught, trapped, stopped cold in your tracks, imprisoned, stumbling through life, but he who trusts the Lord is kept safe. That That word safe carries this connotation of being lifted up out of danger, being exalted, carried over the top of it so it doesn't touch you. We titled this message today, When People Are Big and God Is Small, which I borrowed that title from a a great book by the same title by Ed Welch. In fact, if, if this message speaks to you today, you may want to go home and pick up that book and read it. Proverbs 14 says this, Whoever fears the Lord has a secure fortress, and for their children it will be a refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life turning a person from the snares of death. So Proverbs teaches us all throughout that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And, here, here, and it says here that fear of the Lord is the antidote to this virus of the fear of man. But, but fear, this idea of fear, how can we understand or relate to this better? Growing up in Minnesota, I was uh, hyperactive and rambunctious, wrestling, chasing, throwing balls in the house. I was the kid who everybody wanted to childproof their house from, right? I remember as a kid visiting the home of someone who was really quite wealthy, quite different from my more very simplistic upbringing. I had never been in a home like this. The host immediately gave us a tour of the home, pointing out all of his paintings and vases. If somebody in Oklahoma says vase, you know they're really expensive, saying, this one's worth $100,000. And he'd go and say, oh, this one's worth $250,000. And i got to tell you, I was in awe and trepidation of the value of those furnishings. It was so fearful. I, I was so fearful of accidentally breaking something, I felt this weight of responsibility. But why is the fear of the Lord the beginning of wisdom and not love? How can the Bible say perfect love casts out Fear and then turn around and say, "Fear is the first step toward wisdom." It's because what we're what we're not fearing God's wrath. Jesus has satisfied that through His sacrifice for our sins on the cross. What we are in awe of is the holiness of God that leads us to reverence and worshiping and repenting. We are in awe of the God that has no limits, who is utterly unlike anything or anyone you know. We are in awe of the perfection and extent of the value of His love. This reverence, this fear is the start of the becoming wise. On the other hand, the fear of man is the beginning of folly, Proverbs teaches us. And when we lose sight of the majesty of God, invariably we will fill that gap with something else. The fear of God is also often attached to this idea of glory in the Bible. And the word translated in the Old Testament of glory is is this word hesed, which is actually more of a picture word which means weightiness. Welch in his book describes the fear of man as giving weight to other people in our lives. The fear of man it means you give influence, you give weight to the opinions, to the approval of others, to allowing them to define who you are and what you are worth and what you should do and how you should do it. It is others' approval that you want most rather than giving that weight to God's opinion of who you are and letting Him define you. Uh, but but but, some of you are here are like me you 're that person who has said a lot during your life i don 't care what people think about me, and you say it so much that it seems like you 're trying to prove a point that really isn 't True. It's, it's just your way of avoiding, of, of putting heart distance between of protecting yourself and, and, and your image by putting a strong front out there. I've said it way too many times in my life. and I have, I've had success in dealing with and leading through conflict in every job I've had. And, and yet the more I reflect on my heart, what's going on inside of me, the more I come face to face with this fear of man is so much a part of my life. Let's just take a few moments to spend some time just kind of asking some diagnostic questions to the extent to which this virus infects our heart. Why? Because you remember the definition of wisdom. The definition of wisdom is this. Wisdom is the courage. It starts with courage to face reality. To, to start with our reality, to, to not the image, not the front we put out there, not what we wish were true, and only when we start with reality can we then allow God and His wisdom to begin to help us learn to respond with growing competence and confidence and peace. As I ask these questions, some of you might say, well, I, I, don't, I don't know the answer to that question. Well, if you don't, then just ask your spouse or friend sitting next to you, uh, is this true of me? And they'll tell you, unless, of course, they're afraid of man, and then they won't, right? Okay, some of the questions may be a little painful. Think of it this way. Uh, I've told you in the past, a couple of years ago, the story about how I actually had rocks in my head when I was a kid, and some of you still think I do. The only way the doctor knew where those rocks were was by, uh, to cut them out of my head, was to feel around my head until there was a pain point, and then they knew where the rock was, and they'd deal with it and respond. Question number one. Are you constantly overcommitted? Do you have a hard time saying no? Even when wisdom says you should, say no. This past week I was preparing, and I I heard a famous minister, nationally known uh, guy speaking at all major conferences, always in demand. He stood up at a conference one time with a bunch of ministers and said he had just gotten out of a three-week intensive counseling therapy retreat with his wife for burnout. And what he said was this. He said, it finally dawned on me that by preaching all over the U.S., all of these major conferences all the time, what I was doing was saying yes to people I barely knew and saying no to the woman who would probably one day be changing my catheter. He went on to say, I was saying yes to so many people who would not be at my, my funeral and by default saying no to people I love the most. I've heard so many people in my life, say something similar over the years. And it almost always happens later in life after a major painful crisis in life. Workaholics. Proverbs talks a lot about working hard as a good virtue. Working hard is a wise thing to do, but not in an imbalanced way. The key question for you is, what is driving you to work hard? Is it wisdom? Or is it the fear of man? Are you the one who enjoys it when people say, Uh, They're the first one in the office and the last one to leave. The problem with that is eventually that becomes part of your identity and your self-esteem when you hear that. And then when you start getting older and you can't keep up that pace, what happens then? The great philosopher and motivational speaker Rocky Balboa once said, in Rocky One, the night before the big fight with Apollo Creed, you may remember Rocky can't sleep. He's sitting on the bed. He's troubled, so he says, Yo, Adrian! And she groggily sits up in bed and says, what? And Rocky replies, if I can just go 15 rounds with the champ, nobody's ever gone 15 rounds with the champ. If I can just go 15 rounds with the champ, then I'll know I'm not a bum. And a lot of us live our lives... Trying to prove to yourself, to others, to your dad, whoever it is, that you're not a bum. You are driven by the weight you give to other people's opinions, the fear of man. Question two. Do you feel the need to promote yourself? Are you a big name dropper? Are you the person who finds yourself in conversation saying, you know, I was on the phone the other day with, uh," and then he named somebody famous, right? And when someone else is being praised and complimented, and especially in an area that you've had good success, do you ever find yourself having this urge to pipe up and talk about your accomplishments as well? Or maybe you go the other route. Maybe you're self-deprecating. You throw out a self-deprecating comment, especially ones that really aren't true, so that they elicit a compliment from others. You say, oh, no, I'm not that strong, when you clearly have the biggest biceps in the room. Or you say, it's just a struggle for me. I'm so fat. When you're less than 10% body fat and you have a great figure, just fishing for compliments, right? Tell me I'm worth something. There's an old saying that, the flower grows toward the sunshine of other people's approval. Question three. Is social rejection among your most painful childhood memories? And are those memories the ones that keep coming back in your thoughts today? I heard a funny story that reminded me of my own growing up years. This particular guy was bemoaning the fact that in the age when everyone in his school was wearing the designer Levi's at the time, he was wearing the Sears toughskins. And he only got two pairs each year and they had to last the entire year no matter how much he grew. And then he goes on and starts telling the story about how one time, one of his legs, he got a rip in the jeans and so his mom sewed the rip together and in order to hide the sewing together, she did some embroidery stuff of some cutesy artwork there, right? So nobody could tell it was ripped and sewn, right? And so that wasn't so bad, but when when the seat of his pants ripped, what she decided to do was she embroidered an American flag on his derriere. And to this day, he can remember laughs in the hallway of people pledging allegiance to his rear end. Now, as a result, he vowed he would never again face that kind of humiliation. And what huge ramifications that has for how he spends his money, how hard he works, what he will and won't be seen in public with, how he has to always look good. Do thoughts of your own embarrassing rejection moments growing up still haunt you today? Is social rejection still one of your greatest fears? Maybe it comes out in the fact that you you fear public speaking, or maybe you you tell a joke and then you're all nervous because you have to look around and see if it was really funny, otherwise you feel embarrassed, right? Growing up, my two older brothers used to constantly tell me how stupidly not funny I was. I can still remember the feeling. Today... I can readily admit I'm not the funniest guy out there. I'm not the greatest joke teller. If I deliver a joke, well, it's usually because my wife or my son have coached me on how to deliver it. I still have to be careful, though, to listen to what the negative voices inside of me are, go- are saying in my heart, lest I go beyond what is healthy learning to be funny or to deliver a joke to berating myself. See, w- when you are young, peer pressure is just a euphemism for saying fear of man. During our teen years, we become adept at doing and saying things to be accepted and avoid rejection, trying to fit in. In fact, even in, even in circles where people are trying to be different than everyone else, they, they dress differently, reject the mainstream social norms, What they're still trying to fit in. People who wear studs and spikes, spike their hair and, and dress differently than the majority, all they're doing is adopting a new uniform to fit in with the group they want to fit in with does the thought of professional failure cause you dread and when you drill down on that dread is it is it because of what people will think about you what your spouse or your parents or your friends will think about you question number four do you ever lie particularly little white lies i mean most lies are not big But do you just exaggerate your accomplishments? You scored double figures one time in high school against a team that never won a game. And when you talk about it now, people wonder why you're not playing with LeBron. And of course, we all know LeBron needs some serious help, right? Do You tend to minimize things that might make you look bad. Question number five. Do you show favoritism, especially to people above you on the social, economic, or work ladder? Do you hang out only with cool people or people who can help you get ahead in life? That's the fear of man. I don't really love you. All I'm doing is really using you to feel good about myself and get ahead in life. This can also be diagnosed by looking at how we act in different settings. Are you a chameleon? Do you act one way with your Christian friends in your small group, and do you act completely different when you go to the bar or a work party? Why, why is it that you do that? Uh, it, I think it's because you're trying hard to please people, to be wanted, to be invited back, to be approved. When you're around Im- important people, do you have trouble saying no or disagreeing with them? If none of the previous questions register as that's me, this one probably will. Question six, is evangelism a scary, non-existent activity in your life? Have you ever been too timid to share your faith in Jesus with someone else? Maybe the thoughts running through your mind were, I, I don't want to be that, fighty, that, that that fundamentalist, the superstitious Neanderthal believing in an ancient book. I, I don't want them to think I'm not smart or logical or scientific. I don't want to go there with them because it may cause conflict and they may not like me, they may reject me, they may think less of me. If you have been living or working somewhere for a number of years, notice I said years, not weeks, And the people in the cubicle or across the cul-de-sac from you or the person you sit by at every one of your kids' games doesn't know you were a follower of Jesus. Why is that? It's not that God hasn't given you opportunities to share how much God loves you and how much God loves them. Could it be that you put more weight on that person's approval and love than on God's approval and love? We could ask a lot more questions. Uh, how do you take feedback? Do you listen non-defensively well? Do you smother people? Do you have to have them in your life to feel good? Do you constantly struggle with feeling underappreciated? Do you find yourself looking for false and successful people to make you feel a little bit better about yourself? Fear of man is a snare. It's a trap, a deadly trap, that I think we all struggle with at some level. And the problem with the fear of man is that it always overpromises and never Delivers It always under delivers. No human can carry the weight of our need for approval and satisfy it. Our proverb today says, Wisdom is a fountain of life. Jeremiah the prophet in Jeremiah 2 adds to that same metaphor when he says, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, the fountain of life, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns, that cannot hold water. And then God asks the question to each of us through Jeremiah. He says, Have you not brought this on yourselves by forsaking the Lord your God when he led you in the way? See, the promise of God's wisdom is to make your way, make your paths clear and straight and firm and good, leading you to health in your whole being, in you know, your relationships. But this fear of man virus hijacks us and causes us to pursue water, from broken cisterns now we are all hardwired to want approval favor affirmation from others the desire for approval is not wrong it is not sin the problem emerges when we put that weight on people and not god Some of you have been scarred by decisions you made simply to keep the approval or favor of someone else, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a boss, a relative or a friend. Many of us have crossed moral boundaries in the past because you thought it was the only way to keep a person's love or favor. In fact, some studies actually indicate that the majority of teen girls who have sex with their boyfriend do so mainly because of a fear of rejection, fear of a loss of the boyfriend's love or approval. It's the fear of man, not because they want to or not because they're overcome with sexual desire. The beauty of what we're talking about today, though, is that you're not alone. Abraham struggled with the same thing, the fear of man. On two vivid occasions in a foreign nation, he, we see him fearing for his life. He passes his wife off as his sister because he's certain he's going to be killed so, and another person's going to take her. King Saul, early in his kingship, uh, was commanded by God to wait to make a sacrifice, but Saul disobeyed and made it before he was supposed to, and it cost him greatly. And so we see in 1 Samuel 15, Saul talking to Samuel saying, I have sinned. Why? Because I feared the people and listened to their voice. Peter, this get out of the boat, walk on the water in a storm, courageous big talker among the Jesus' disciples, finds himself standing in the courtyard where they've taken Jesus after they arrest him. John, his friend, is already there. His co-disciple is already there. Peter standing there warming himself by a fire. And a 12-year-old girl says, You are with Jesus. And for a freer of man, Peter denies Jesus three times. To the 12 year old girl. John talks about why many religious leaders of the day actually believed in Jesus but would not openly follow him, saying in John 12, For they loved human praise more than praise from God. You may remember Nick at night, Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin, the ruling council, who believed in Jesus but he would only come to Jesus at night. Why? for fear of religious leaders and people's opinions of him. Joseph of Arimathea was another. People who believed in Jesus but didn't want to come out of the closet. That might be very well where some of you are today. You believe in Jesus. You want to believe in Jesus. You are convinced following Jesus is right and good and best. You may even privately identify as a Christian, but you don't come out publicly. You've never been baptized. You don't share your faith with others. You fear what your parents or others in your life might say. And honestly, those fears might be justifiable. But the point is, you put more weight on their opinion than on God's. Now, the secret of Proverbs is that most of our horizontal issues, our relational issues, our interpersonal issues, the work issues, the self-esteem issues are really vertical issues. At the core, they are issues about how we think and relate to God. And, And the great good news about them being vertical issues is that we can go to God and we can receive help by receiving his gospel. His good news fixes this virus in our hearts. Let's go back to our core verse, Proverbs 29. Fear of man will prove to be a snare, but then there's the second part. But whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. The one who relies on the Lord, the one who puts the primary weight for all things, all opinions, all approval, all love on God, not on others. The one who pushes all their chips into the center of the table saying, I'm all in on Jesus. That one is kept safe and free. Proverbs 14 further spells out the and when it clearly says, whoever fears the Lord has a secure fortress and for their children it will be a refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life turning a person from the snares of death. What it's saying is it takes a bigger, weightier fear or awe to beat a littler fear. You fight fear with a greater fear. There are two things that will actually begin to help you journey or continue your journey or accelerate your journey, moving away from the fear of man to the freedom of God. And, and the first one is reality. Wisdom always starts with reality. I don't think anyone here who has any level of self-awareness and honesty could honestly answer any of the diagnostic, all of the diagnostic questions that we said without recognizing some level of the fear of man in you. We have to start with that recognition. And second, we need to press in, and we need to know the power and the love of Jesus in our lives, the power of the gospel. But here's the problem. If you're a regular church attender, you hear the gospel over and over again, and for many of us, it becomes white noise. So let me say the gospel in several different ways this morning. The good news, the, the gospel of Jesus, the promise of Jesus is that knowing God is knowing God loves you. Knowing God pursues you and is faithful to you even when you are unfaithful. Knowing God promises to complete the work He began in you. So even when you fall short and mess up, that solid promise is still there for you. Knowing that you are valuable to God above all else. So much so that He came from heaven as Jesus to die for your sins so that you could be free. Second Corinthians 5 puts it this way. It says, God made Him, Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us, on our behalf to take our sin, so that in Him... We might become the righteousness of God. See, God takes our punishment so that He can give us His righteousness, His right standing. Jesus took the condemnation we rightfully earned by our prideful rebellion against God, believing we knew better than He did and our ways, so that He could give the gift of being fully approved and delighted in by God. Jesus, the one who was the only commendable one, became. Condemned, so that the condemned ones, you and I, could become commendable. The only one who was ever truly free to be who he is came, meaning God initiated pursuing you and I, taking on the pain and suffering of the enslaving, demeaning, humiliating, shameful, embarrassing, painful results of sin in and around our lives so that we could be forgiven and free to become fully and authentically the awesome, beautiful people God created us to be. Jesus was treated like an enemy because of our sins so that you and I could be treated as friends. This is called in theological language the doctrine of imputation. Jesus takes what we deserve and He gives us who He is. Jesus didn't just take your sin. He gave you His righteousness so that when God looks at you, He sees Jesus. And therefore... We all who follow Jesus get to hear the words God spoke to Jesus in Matthew 3 where he says, You are my son, you are my daughter, in whom I am well pleased. Aren't those words that each and every one of us want to hear over our lives? Don't we need to hear that we are pleasing and acceptable to God and others? Here's the interesting thing. The words of affirmation are at the end of chapter 3 in Matthew. Now, if you didn't know this, the original manuscripts of the Bible didn't come with chapters and verse numbers. Those were added by translators so that we could just find things easier. But but here's why that's important. We often separate this last verse of Matthew 3 where God says that to Jesus from from chapter 4, which is Jesus facing the three temptations. The the, the three temptations that Jesus faces are all about where the weight of his identity is an affirmation comes from, where his approval comes from. Did he believe and trust God when God said he was well pleased with him or not? So the temptations were, what, what is it that satisfies Jesus' hunger and his desire? Temptation one. What is it that satisfies his sense of power and confidence in life? And, and what is it that satisfies Jesus' need for approval? Temptation number three. And see, all these temptations emanate from these three. Everything we experience emanates from these three. And all temptation at its core finds its power in our lives in the struggle for approval and affirmation and worth. And the antidote to Jesus facing the fear of man, the need for approval, and the antidote for you and I to do the same thing is not putting weight on the things that make us feel worthwhile or other people, but solidly and confidently trusting in the only source of approval that really matters, and that's God's. So that in Christ, I can hear Him say, Ross, I am well pleased with you. In Christ, you can hear Him say... Doug, I am well pleased with you. Mary, I am well pleased with you. Jenny, I am so well pleased with you. God wants to say that to every single one of us in a personal way. But we have a hard time hearing that, don't we? And receiving that approval. Because we know we're not like Jesus. We know we've messed up. But when you fear the Lord, when you put the proper reverence and weight on who God thinks of you, what God thinks of you, then you live in that secure love and that free place of the pleasure that God has in you when he looks at you. And this takes us to this wonderful, wonderful place in life where we can start saying, I am not what my parents said I am. I'm not what my coaches or my teachers or somebody else in my life said I am. I'm not what my performance says I am. I'm not what my past and my sins says I am I am what God says I am because he guarantees he guarantees that one day he will complete his work in me so even though I am so far from complete today even if I mess up today even if I sin today or in the past that's not my identity And that doesn't undermine God's pleasure and his approval of me. Do you know the freedom of that? The power of that? The joy of that? The peace and the courage of that? But some of you say, you don't know the mess. You don't know the mess I brought in here today when I walked in today. I, I may not. But here's the deal whether that mess of sin came about in your life last night, last week, last year, a decade ago, your sin will be pointed out at some point in your life regardless of what you do. It will be pointed out. God will at some point point out your sin. In this life, God gives you the chance to accept His gift of Him taking the punishment for you and giving you His righteousness and lavishing on you the love of I am well pleased with you. I believe in you. Or, your sin will be pointed out by Satan in accusing thoughts and memories that keep coming up on a regular basis and make you think and feel unworthy, make you feel rejected, not good enough, and Satan will say, that's who you are! But God says, No, that's not who you are. Oh, you may have sinned, yes, but your sin doesn't define you. Your mistakes don't define you. Jesus says, I paid a price to take that away, and you, if you will follow me, you get to live free and walk more and more each day into the wonderful, good, healthy, whole, powerful, beautiful person I created you to be, and all the joy that comes along with that, and meaning that comes along with that. And all along the way, no matter what God is saying to you, to every single person in this room, I am so very pleased with you. You bring so much delight to my heart. I love you. I think you are amazing and beautiful. So don't let that mistake define you. Let me define you. You see, sin explains your activity, but it doesn't Explain your identity. You need to preach to yourself every day, every minute God loves me. God approves of me. God is always there for me and delights in me. And even when I mess up and sin, that doesn't keep him away. He keeps pursuing me with delight and kindness and forgiveness to rescue me and love me and be with me. But here's the lesson of wisdom here's the lesson of wisdom. To whom do you give the weight? To define who you are whether you are loved approved or worthy do you fear man and their opinions more or do you live in such awe of God and what he thinks about you and who he's made you to be that you let him define your identity and and that becomes your motivation in life would you please stand with me we're going to close a little bit different today I'm going to close by asking us to just say together out loud a prayer. And if you don't feel comfortable with this prayer, that's fine. But, but if you do, just, would you just say this out loud? Would you just, let's just pray it out loud. God, it's true. I confess I fear people more than you. I want to choose you. Set me free. Help me to rest in the good news of your love and value your approval and opinion of me above all others. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd make that prayer so real in each and every one of our lives. Lord, especially people who came in this morning with loud voices in their head over this weekend or even coming here this morning saying, you're a bum. I pray that you would move that voice. And right now, by your Spirit, even as we continue to worship and we take awe of you in this next song, that you would come and just speak tenderly as to how much you love and delight in each and every person here. No matter the mistakes, you have a beautiful plan. You've created them so wonderfully, and you want to be in our lives. So, Holy Spirit, we just welcome your presence to be that intimate and personal with each and every one of us right now. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you're loving Quest podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information on Quest, who we are, what God is doing here, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at GoToQuest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org. Thanks for listening.